Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Good morning. It's uh, one minute past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. Good morning to you. My name is Bron Burton and joining me on Skype is... Farm. Hi. Hey, Farm. How are you going? Yes, pretty good. Oh, my God. I can hear myself. This is great. <laughs> We're but- here. We're ready. Fantastic. That's great. Hey, thank you very much, Tim Thorpe, for a wonderful three hours of Vital Bits, six hours of Vital Bits throughout this weekend. And thank you very much to Andrew for Soulful Bits this morning as well. You can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6am for another six hours of Vital Bits. We were just uh, chatting uh, via text messaging about this weird kind of slow, fast phenomenon that exists at the moment. I don't know if you're finding that fun, that the weeks are both flying by, but they feel really slow all at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And often I can't remember how long ago something happened. It's like, oh, yeah, remember this happened last week and then it's like a month ago. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, All right. Let's go through today's program. Um, We're shortly going to be catching up with Rex Hunter, uh, who is our maritime archaeologist here, our in-time maritime archaeologist here at 3RRR uh, and Radio Marinara more particularly. Um, And Rex is going to be teaching us all about the former ballast trade. Uh, So this was something that happened um, particularly during the 19th century and its vital role in enabling ships to leave Melbourne. Uh, we're then going to be um, uh, just having a bit of news, Farm. You've got some news there, which we'll get to shortly. Yep, sure do. Um, it's pretty exciting stuff by um, uh, the Nature Conservancy, so stay tuned for that one. Fantastic. Uh, then we're going to be, actually, this is very exciting, we're going to be crossing to, I think, the northern beaches of Sydney and speaking with Barton Lynch. So um, people who are in the surfing community and maybe who've even followed surfing will know that Barton Lynch was a world champion surfer in, I think he, he achieved that world title back in 1988 particularly prominent in the world of uh, competitive surfing through the 80s, um, but was also uh, a world, I think a world, but anyway, very, very um, successful junior pro surfer as well. And for the last 15 years, he's been running a program called Blast Off, and it's this fantastic surfing program, um, particularly focusing on coaching, but also with a competitive element in it for kids. And a really good example of having a a local idea that leads to um, eventually a global idea and now an international, sorry, yeah, national, then to a global idea. Um, Blastoff's now celebrating its 15th year and they're encouraging young surfers from all over the world to send in footage of them showing how good they are in the water. And part of it is a coaching element. So they receive some coaching tips from the crew, but then they also um, have some prizes for uh, for this competition as well. I was having a look at their website last night and, oh, my God, some of these kids, they are just insane. Um, the oh, young, the Yeah, y- it's really depressing. When, they, when you see them in the water, it's like, you know, I'm trying to paddle for this wave and it's <laughs> taking me all this effort and I fall off. And then there's just this little grommet just ripping it up, you know. 
Oh, it's amazing. Like the, the youngest one I saw um, standing on a board with his dad was three. And, you know, oh he, he was being taken for a ride, but he was riding a surfboard at the age of three years old. So absolutely incredible. Yeah, so, great. so we're going to speak with Barton about this program and I'm going to try and sneak in a few questions about his life as a competitive surfer as well. And, yeah, really looking forward to that one. And then we're going to be catching up with Jackie Younger uh, from the Save Our Spider Crabs campaign. Um, we've been routinely catching up with Jackie and also with Dallas De Silva from um, Victorian Fisheries Authority about, you know, that there was some fairly um, disturbing scenes that happened through May and June this year as the spider crabs came into the Mornington Peninsula to uh, to aggregate and then eventually to molt and then to breed. So it's all part of this breeding cycle and Save Our Spider Crabs are very keen to try and um, advocate for better protection of the spider crabs during this particular time of their breeding cycle. So we'll be catching up with Jackie on the campaign, uh, how it's been travelling and can you believe it, Farm, only six months until the spider crabs come back. Oh, my God. It's going so fast. Yeah, as I said, uh, time is very relative right now. Six months does not feel like six months. No, it really doesn't. Um, Okay, so that's our show today. Uh, Now, I believe you have um, a little weather forecast for us. Yes, we do. So the weather for Sunday, the 18th of October, today is going to be cloudy, as you can see outside. Uh, Medium 40% chance of a shower, most likely in the morning. Winds are southerly, 15 to 25 k's an hour, becoming light in the evening. And today we'll have a top of 15 degrees. Tomorrow is pretty much the same with a top of 16. Uh, And then it's going to warm up slightly uh, and get a bit drier over the next few days until Thursday with a top of 23. And after that, it's going to go downhill again. Friday, 21 and 90% chance of rain. And yes, I won't talk about the weekend because that will probably change again. Uh, The tides for today, St Kilda, uh, your next low is at 10.53 this morning. Uh, Torquay Surf Beach, your next high will be at 1.29 p.m. today. And if you are lucky enough to have your 5K bubbles around Sorrento, your next high will be 3.25 p.m. in case you want to go out for a dive or a snorkel. Yeah, it'll be interesting to hear today what happens with that 5K bubble and how much that extends. I think there's a lot of anticipation for some um, big announcements. Oh, I know. The anticipation is killing me. And uh, he did give a little teaser, didn't he? Because he said most of the changes were going to be more in the the social realm rather than economic. So, yes, I'm very, very excited. Let's all cross our fingers for that big announcement. We'll see whether he's wearing his um, North Face jacket or his... um, I know. or, Or his suit. If he wears a North Face jacket, it's time for a party. You know that. (laughs) Excellent. Um, Now, uh, I think we've got time for maybe one quick news item. Yeah, well, I've got a plug. Um, Don't forget that today from 9 a.m. until noon, it is Spring Clean Your Patch. Uh, brought to you by Beach Patrol Australia and Love Our Street. Usually uh, it is sp- the Spring Clean the City event, but obviously that's not happening. So they're encouraging everybody to spring clean your own patch within your 5K radius. Um, and uh, it's basically the COVID edition. Uh, you can download the Little Stopper app as well to record what you find. And uh, it will be very interesting to see all the cleanup data from all over the city. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and what a great idea to keep it local. Um, and just obviously yeah. we'd be encouraging people to stay, um, stay, be careful as you're doing this because um, I've spotted quite a few disposable masks lying around. I guess we're not probably encouraging people to pick up masks that have been worn by other people. 
That's right. That's right. And wear gloves and, uh, you know, wear all of your normal safety protection, including your mask today as well. And there's another quick plug. I just wanted to congratulate Dolphin Research Institute today for winning the uh, Keep Victoria Beautiful Tidy Towns Environment Award last week for their IC, I Care Marine Ambassadors Program. Um, congratulations, everyone, uh, especially to the education team. The ICI Care Ambassador Program is designed for students in years five and six, and um, they choose four students to be chosen as ambassadors from that school for the year. And then they learn about what lives in our bay and in all the waterways and the many issues that are facing our wildlife in the bay. And then those ambassadors develop the skills and the self-confidence to pass their knowledge on to their peers and the younger kids in the lower classes as well and at school assemblies. So really wonderful wonderful program and congratulations everyone from the Dolphin Research Institute for winning that award. Yeah, really wonderful. Congratulations, Dolphin Research Institute, and we are so very lucky to have you. And uh, yes, as you said, Farm, award very well deserved. And uh, let's welcome into the studio Rex Hunter. Good morning, Rex. Hi, Ron. Good to see you here. <laughs> well, hearing Don't anyway. I can see you. You can't see me, though. <laughs> How's it going? Good. You just don't have a cup of coffee this time, Ron. Oh, yes. <laughs> Did you have to bring that up? <laughs> if, if, if you're wondering what Rex is talking about, last time Rex was on the program, um, I was at home and Anthony was in the studio and, uh, yeah, managed to knock over a cup of coffee straight into a power board, shorted out the entire house and um, completely disconnected myself from our Skype call. So, yeah, that was, that was a bit of a... <laughs> Well, you did manage to come back for the last minute. So that was pretty I did. Impressive. By the time we had to put the power back on in the house, yes. Caught the last two minutes of the show. Anyway, no chance of that this morning. Uh, how are you, Rex? And uh, let's talk about ballast in the 19th century as a trade. What's that all about? Well, yeah, I'm glad you asked, Ron. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, well, Victoria as a port during the uh, 19th century, it was a lot of one-way traffic, so vessels would come in with cargo that there was virtually nothing to take out. So this goes right back to the 18, 1830s where Melbourne was just established and there was um, little trading vessels coming across from Tasmania, you know, they were probably 40, 50 tonnes or so, and they bring sheep or bricks or something, but there was nothing to leave with. So they had to get ballast, which is just a counterweight. If you imagined um, like a giant skyscraper, they have a type of ballast in that the uh, foundations they have go down, you know, 30, 40 metres into the ground. So that stops them from tipping over it. It's the same idea with a sailing vessel. They need need ballast to prevent them tipping over. Even these days, um, large ships take on water ballast. So it's still still in use. It's fascinating to think of it being such a one-way trade that all this stuff was coming into Melbourne, but there was nothing at that point going out. And obviously that changed at some point. But what was used for ballast? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Ron, otherwise I'd have, I'd have nothing to talk about. <laughs> Any, anyone would think we'd con- constructed this entire conversation previously, but we actually haven't. Um, yeah. So what was no, used? Well, I'm, I'm picturing maybe, you know, um, harvesting a whole lot of bluestone in the rivers or something like that. Oh, have you, you read my notes? <laughs> no. <laughs> really? Uh, there, was, there was a massive trade in bluestone from... Um, well, most people who live in the western suburbs know that it's just uh, the, the whole place is covered in bluestone. You can't dig a hole without striking a piece of bluestone. So all through the western suburbs of Footscray, all the way down to Williamstown, it's all sitting on basalt. So there was a, a massive trade 
right up the Maribyrnong River is right where, um, if you know the back of Footscray Tech, sort of Farnsworth Avenue, there was, there was ballast quarries there where they'd bring up five, 600 tonne vessels and load them up there. Because up there the water was, you know, like six, five, six metres deep. So all the way through there through to um, Stony Creek, if people know Stony Creek backwash, backwater, it's right under Westgate Bridge. That was a massive, massive um, bluestone quarry there during the uh, 19th, mid, sort of started the mid-19th century. And they'd actually they also put out dressed stone as well, you know, finished stone, through through to Williamstown. So, and there was also, with these, um, with these quarry sites, you need obviously vessels, so say small vessels between sort of 20, 20 and 40 tonnes would load up basalt from the quarries and then they'd take them out to a sailing vessel. So a sailing vessel might need, you know, three, four, 400 tonnes, maybe even more of um, basalt to bring it down to its marks. So there's like a Plimsoll, well, actually this is pre-Plimsoll Plimsoll line, but there was a, a new, they knew they needed, say, probably four, you know, three, four hundred tonnes of stone so they could safely leave the port. And quite often they'd just go up to Newcastle because there was no backloading, hardly any backloading out of Victoria, and they'd go up to Newcastle and they'd dump, dump the ballast there and they'd get a cargo of coal or something like that and then head, head over to Europe. That was going to be my next question about what happened to all that bluestone. Where did it all end up? So is was it mostly Newcastle? A lot went to Newcastle, and still a lot in Hobson's Bay. Um, I imagine that they probably had too much bluestone. The ship was full, and instead of, instead of bringing it back, they just tossed it over the side. So all throughout Hobson's Bay, there's all um, masses of uh, piles of bluestone ballast. And there's also um, ballast that have been brought out from overseas, ships and dumped over, dumped over the side. Like, you know, there's building, there's peat, timber, bricks, and all sorts of stuff. Sitting so, on, uh, on the bay. Can you see it when you go? How far out is it? Is it something that people can see if they were to go um, snorkeling from the shore? Oh, yeah, certainly off Port Melbourne, down near um, in the Sandwich Bend, Bend there, there was a, just offshore, there's just piles of bluestone everywhere, you know, sort of 50, 60 metres offshore. But, but there's also other port, we know Port Melbourne these days, but back in sort of, back in the 18. 1830s, 1840s, uh, and 1850s, it became known as, it was called Sandridge. It was called Sandridge because that's all it was, it was just sand. So there also there was also a massive trade in sand ballast out of um, Port Melbourne. So you can imagine Fisherman's Bend down that end of Port Melbourne, which is all all set, all, you know, had, had uh, factories and all that built over since, but that was all, all great big quarry holes. So they... They'd have camps employing 40, 50 men who just dig out the sand, load it in small lighters, and then, again, they'd take it offshore and fill up the um, sailing vessels with enough uh, enough ballast so they could leave port, safely leave port and head somewhere else. So there was a couple of different types of trade and also building, building rubble because there was so much building going on in Melbourne during the uh, gold rushes. They would also sell the spoil or the dirt they dug out of the hole for the foundations as ballast. So, you know, this this ballast could have ended up anywhere in the world. Is it uh, – what? so we mentioned about Newcastle and I'm sort of picturing once it, once it got to Newcastle and was then presumably unloaded off the ships, 
as as yeah. more cargo was loaded on. Do we know that there are buildings in Newcastle and, and around that area made out of bluestone that's come out of Melbourne? Well, it's actually used to because there was a an island just offshore. I think it's called the Nut, and they actually filled in the, between the Nut and uh, the point at Newcastle. So all that a lot of that is actually just um, Williamstown or Footscray uh, bluestone. So it was used a lot as filling. Huh. Absolutely fascinating. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Farm, <laughs> Farm, did you have a question? Oh, no, not really. I'm just really fascinated to learn about it. And it's, it's kind of blowing my mind to think that there might be sand from Melbourne somewhere, you know, in any port or in any place in the world, really, uh, being dumped with all the shells in it and things like that. And then, you know, a biologist like me swimming along going like, oh, that's interesting, that particular <laughs> shell, that only lives in Australia usually. What has happened here? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm thinking. Yeah, and I'm picturing reefs that have sort of grown on these, you know, big chunks of bluestone, which would form a type of, you know, a substratum really as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's obviously um, what Fran was talking about. There's been a problem in the last 20 or 30 years whereby ballast water brought from Japan or somewhere like that has brought in the, the Japanese starfish and the seaweed. And yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is how we get the Northern Pacific Sea Star pest in the bay because of that bottle of ballast water going all over the place, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's interesting, isn't it, the difference between ballast water and, and ballast solid, which would have been the case for the bluestone that was used as a weight rather than actually having water, which is going to be easier to pump in and out of the hull, but, yes. but obviously more problematic and, and carrying a greater risk of, of you know having larvae coming through it as well. All right. <laughs> Anything else, Rex? What are... <laughs> silence. Yeah. What have you got coming up over the next few weeks? For me, hopefully yep. getting getting out of home for one, <laughs> and, uh, getting the boat on the water and doing a bit of uh, searching and a bit of archaeology. Fantastic. That's what I'm looking forward to. All right. Well, hopefully when we catch up with you next time, we'll be able to report on some field work and uh, and some more of the great stuff that you do out there, mowing the lawn and um, <laughs> and discovering all this really cool stuff underwater about our maritime history. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, excellent. Okay, thanks, Rex. See you, See you next time. Great to have you Bye. with us. Bye. Bye. Triple R is where you are. Radio Marinara is the name of this program, where it is currently 9.25. We've got a few minutes for some news. Farm, have we uh, covered all your news items for the week? Well, there's one that I'd like to mention because it's quite exciting. Um, you remember that the Nature Conservancy has done a few uh, programs in Port Phillip Bay here uh, regarding this restoration of the old shellfish uh, oyster beds here uh, and, and building new reefs. Uh, well, since the beginning of this month, they actually have been funded $20 million to implement the Reef Builder program uh, and recover this near-extinct marine ecosystem. So they're uh, doing it in a partnership between the Australian government and um, they are creating, <laughs> which is fantastic, up to 170 jobs and engage up to 120 local contractors uh, by, by restoring this marine ecosystem. And they're not only doing it in Port Phillip Bay, uh, but they're doing it also uh, in southeast Queensland uh, and right around Australia's coastline, uh, southern coastline to Perth. So there's about 11 coastal communities um, that will be involved in the restoration of these shellfish reefs all over the place. So it's very, very exciting, uh, specifically because, you know, now less than 10% of the shellfish reefs 
that were they used to be here uh, now remain, and that makes them one of Australia's most endangered marine ecosystems. Uh, so I believe in Port Phillip Bay we're going to get two. I'm um, not exactly sure about the location in the bay, but we're getting um, a few in Port Phillip Bay and then also in the Gippsland Lake. They will be uh, restoring reefs over the next few years. Uh, so not just good news for the reefs, but uh, yeah, also for employment, uh, it looks like. Yeah, really great news. It's, it's you know, particularly at this time, it's so good to focus on the good news and the Nature Conservancy really does amazing work. So this has been a long-running program and, and really exciting to see that they've got an, another injection of funding that they always put to great use. So, yeah, we'll have to follow that one, Farm. Absolutely. We have to get uh, uh, Simon Brannigan on board here and, uh, and, and chat about him because, you know, they've been running this program for the last six years and they started with a, a pilot and just kind of built from there. Um, and now it's it's just become this huge project. Uh, I'm very, very excited um, to see this happen all around the, the southern part of Australia. Yeah, really wonderful. Um, a quick one that I wanted to get in, and I'm, look, I've got a few not-so-great news stories, but I'm going to hold off on those. We, we might mention those next week because I think let's stay focused on the positive. We'll keep it a positive show today. <laughs> um, University of Western Australia has announced some funding boost. I know this is um, it's coming at a time when uh, academic institutions all around the country are facing really catastrophic cuts to their their research budgets but this is a good one from Western Australia through the Oceans Institute they've um, just awarded some funding to support eight PhD students uh, a total of $92,000 and this is through an award scheme the 2020 Robson and Robertson award scheme and the students are going to use the funds to cover some field work time aboard research vessels I'll just mention what some of these projects were because I was reading through these and I saw the press release I'm thinking oh yeah it'll be you know it'll be industry related but it's actually not um so some really interesting research subjects coming up here and we're going to try and catch up with some of these people there's uh hydrodynamic forces on coral reefs there's um participatory mapping of karajuri coastal traditional ecological knowledge tracing long distance maritime connections in the indian ocean world via analysis of persian gulf torpedo jars that one sounds fascinating wow that's very specific. <laughs> it is. It's going to be one of those PhDs where you can picture the person at their graduation and people sitting there going, what? Yeah. <laughs> um, developing early warning stress indicators of leaf metabolism in temperate and tropical seagrasses. Oh, can't wait to see what comes out of that one. Future of yeah. Ningaloo and Exmouth Gulf coral reefs utilising insect protein in freshwater aquaculture diets. That one looks interesting, Farm. Yeah, that's a no-brainer for me, actually. My uh, university in the Netherlands, Wageningen University, does a lot of research into uh, insect protein because they're very uh, food-focused at university, um, and it, it's the way of the future. So it doesn't surprise me that aquaculture is a really good market for it. No, definitely. Um, this one, uh, Dr. Beach will love this one. We've spoken a lot about environmental DNA on this program. This one's called Developing Molecular Techniques to Obtain Population-Level Inferences of Whale Sharks from Environmental DNA. Um, which looks absolutely fascinating. And the final one, Australia's Hidden Landscape, Reconstructing Submerged Coastal Environments and Landform Evolution During the Last Glacial Cycle. So eight fantastic projects that uh, are about to kick off. So we will follow those through here on Radio Marinara and we'll get in touch with some of the people at the University of Western Australia who are doing this amazing research. All right, 9.30, this is Radio Marinara. And very shortly, we're going to be speaking with Barton Lynch about his program, Blast Off. And uh, if you've got kids or if you know of kids who surf, how they might want to take part in it as well. Very exciting. While we line up, Bart, it is a 
about 25 minutes to 10. 9.34, you're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, Blast Off is a fantastic surfing and it's a coaching program and a competition as well for kids. Uh, a great example of local leading to national, leading to global. Blast Off is now celebrating its 15th year and young surfers from all over the world are being encouraged to submit footage of them showing their stoke in the water. The competition finishes at the end of October. To find all about it, we're now going to cross to, I think, the northern beaches of Sydney. We'll find out in a minute. To catch up with Blast Off founder, member of multiple surfing halls of fame and former surfing world champion and surfing legend Barton Lynch. Barton, good morning. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's fantastic to have you with us. Um, now, I, I, I'm guessing you're northern beaches of Sydney. Is that right? Uh, well, no, it's not actual, uh-huh. and I am. And I'm from there, born and bred on the northern beaches of Sydney. But as we speak, I am in on the north shore of Oahu, on the islands of Hawaii. Oh my goodness! <laughs> oh, I had oh, yeah, wow. yeah. <laughs> I was going to throw in a question about how are things in Sydney this weekend, but I'm guessing uh, you don't know the answer to that question. So uh, amazing. No, I have. I haven't been in Sydney for a year, actually. It's been, uh, we came to Hawaii last October. Um, We were scheduled to leave at the end of March and head back to Australia. And obviously when COVID hit, that flight got cancelled. And then we had a flight at the end of April and that flight got cancelled. And and then we got marooned for a period of time and just got extensions to our visas. And so it's been a, yeah, it's like it's been near on a year. We got here, I suppose, on the 25th of October last year. So near on a year that we've been here and um absolutely amazing crazy times that we're living yeah indeed (laughs) how are things in hawaii as far as coronavirus is concerned worse places to get stuck than hawaii (laughs) yes definitely worse places to get stuck and it's definitely a uh you know, it, 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 obviously we had to we had to leave and, and do go to Mexico City for three weeks. About two weeks ago, um, our visas, the days of satisfactory departure, they call those extensions on the visas through COVID. They 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 ended up uh, getting cancelled, and we had to be out by the 25th of September. But at that point in time, we'd also applied. I'd applied for a um, a, a what's called an O1 visa here in the US to to work in the coaching area which is what I do a lot of and, and really was the premise of Blast Off starting was my coaching. Um, and, uh, and so we went to Mexico City for three weeks and, and went out on a, into, the, into the new COVID world and travelled to Mexico City and had appointments at the US consulate there and, and got the visas put into our passports. And then we returned here back to Hawaii about a little over a week ago. And so I've been in quarantine here in Hawaii for a week. So I don't even know what it's like outside of our yard here in Hawaii either, because so, we've been we've been here for the yeah in quarantine for the week, as I said. Yeah, hey, we'll get into blast off in just a sec, but um, we have a very large number of yeah. surfers who'll be listening at the moment, and they're not going to forgive me if I didn't take the opportunity to ask you about <laughs> about your history as a pro surfer, and particularly through the '80s. So you were world champion in 1988. Can you tell us a bit about what mm. competitive surfing was like back in the '80s? Oh, it was a, yeah, it was a very different world. Um, you know, I, I went out on the tour when I was uh, 18, 19 years of age, um, and I did that world tour for 15 years. And so um, back in those days, there was 
you know, now now young kids today grow up with their parents involved in their surfing and their parents surf. And, you know, it might be that your doctor surfs, your lawyer surfs, you know, there's surfers are across all the different areas and levels of community and society. Um, when I was a kid, surfing was like a subculture and it was one of those things that really your parents didn't want you to do. It was nearly embarrassing that you were a surfer. You know, they would rather you have been a doctor or a lawyer or something that brought credibility to the family. And a, a surfer was looked upon as a beach bum and a no-hoper and a drug addict. And there were all these connotations around what surfing was and what we were as surfers, um, that we, we all worked very, very hard, particularly that, that generation that I was a part of through the 80s, that our, our primary goal was to have people respect our sport and respect what we did and re respect it, you know, for its extreme physical, you know, it, it's, a, it's a radical thing to do to paddle out into the, into the ocean and, the, and, and off terra firma and into massive seas and, you know, so, and, and I feel like that, that work that we all did back through the 80s and the time spent, you know, developing a building and, and promoting a professional sport. You know, we live in the times now where parents actually want their kids to be professional surfers and think it's a great idea as a career path. Yeah, definitely. That must be pretty amazing for you to have kind of lived through that change and to be, you know, to have had such a key role in bringing about that change as well. Yeah, that's something that we, you know, I feel very proud of and we were very conscious um in the way we built it and the things that we said, you know, about our sport. And, and, and it's got to that point now, you know, people are on million, multi-million dollar contracts. Um, they win $100,000 for an event win. When we did it, it might have been, you know, two to five grand. And then a, the biggest events to, you know, might have been $10,000. And you most probably spent half of that just getting there. So um, to see the sport evolve to the point where it's respected, um, you know, professional surfers are household names to a degree and, and it's looked upon like all other sporting endeavours are. Um, and, and the whole, I suppose, action sports and extreme sports and that whole area has evolved as well at the same time, whether it be snowboarding or skateboarding or BMX. And there's this whole world of action sport where... Um, that, that were the sort of left field sports that are now the, the, the main sports, the primary sports. Yeah, it's that it's that recognition and that respect that you're talking about, and and also an understanding, I think, about the skill that's required to to uh, to be able to successfully surf the way that you do. I have a question for you from a regular listener and a surfer who goes by the name of Sarge. He says, "Were you more scared of pipeline or dahui? I don't. Is it? Did I pronounce that right?" Yeah, the Dahui, no, I was definitely more scared of Pipeline, that's for sure. Um, the Dahui was a local organisation here, a board riders club, if you like. You know how we have board riders clubs in Australia at the beaches, and it was a board riders club here in Hawaii, the original that kind of represented local Hawaiians' um, interests, you might say. And, uh, you know, you imagine Hawaii is one of those places where, you know, ordinarily um, around November... You know, it goes from a sleepy little country town with no waves through the summer. It literally is dead flat out, out the frontier, like a lake, like a lagoon. And then the waves start at sort of the end of September and the ocean starts to wake up. And by November, um, when, when the locals are starting to get some waves and they've sat here for, call it, three or four months through nothing, waiting for that moment, and then the world starts arriving and getting off aeroplanes. You know, in the thousands of people every single day with, with board bags full of surfboards and they just arrive and start paddling out and start, um, 
you know, and, and we're all guilty, are acting like they own the place and taking the ways from the locals. And, and, and in the past, that has created some friction, that attitude and that lack of respect. And so that's one of those things that people always think about when they think of Hawaii is that side of things. But really, it's, you know, when you've spent as much time here as I have and you understand the way things are and you understand the realities of it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's great that the locals get get their respect and get their ways. They put in the time, they live here, they deserve it. And, uh, you know, we all, we, we, we all can take seconds. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. Now, let's go to Blast Off now. It's in its 15th year. Yeah. Let's go back to its origins. When did the idea of Blast Off first happen for you? Well, I, you know, um, and I'm not sure, in Sydney, but the beach, on the northern beaches of Sydney where I grew up, um, I, I grew up at Whale Beach, Palm Beach and Avalon. There, It's called the Peninsula and those three beaches are kind of, you've got to go around what are called the bends and there's this little winding road you go around to get there and you can't drive through there. Um, and my, my dad grew up there or, or moved there when I was born and, and I grew up there and my father started what is called the Big Swim, which is the Palm Beach to Whale Beach Big Swim that happens every year. It's an ocean open swim race. It's the longest running, um, most participated in open ocean swim race in Australia. It's kind of like the, the you know, it was the founding father of open ocean swim races and my dad started that event um, in 1974. It was my dad's idea in 73 to swim it with some mates and um, the next 74 it became a swim you know 30 people 20 30 people swam it um, now today my dad died in 1974 five the year after that and it became his memorial swim and the Bob Lynch Memorial Swim which is now the Macquarie Bank Big Swim still runs to this day and 3,000 people swim it every year and it's you know the, the largest, most participated in open ocean swim race in the country and I was able to see what an incredible community asset my dad left behind him and it, it, was, a, it, was, it was an inspiration for me to create something in my area of, of the ocean which is um, you know surfing and on those same beaches and so I was out injured for six months and I went okay I'm going to do that, I'm going to put that idea together and we started it and 15 years later you know we are the biggest uh, family surf festival in the, in the country and people and possibly the world and people come from different parts of the world to participate in it and it's it's you know it's amazing and the two biggest events on the peninsula on the, those northern beaches of sydney um palm beach Whale beach and avalon and my dad's swim and my surf event and so that's again that's something that I, I take a lot of pride in and and hopefully blast off can live beyond my life and be a community asset in the same way that my dad's swim has i was having a look at the website last night and we were talking at the start of the program about the footage that some of these kids are sending in and we should talk a little bit about the the program the fact that it's coaching and mentoring yeah. and, and it's that competitive element as well some of the footage that these kids are sending in uh, is just blowing my mind how skilled they are and you mentioned earlier about about how um, about the you know the potential influence that parents can have with their kids, and I spotted a little bit of footage of a three-year-old. I think he was standing on a board with his dad. It's just so heartening. It's so uh, fan- yeah. yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so yeah, fan- I do. Yeah, fan- fantastic to see. Let's talk about um, Blast Off this year because it's gone from being um, local to global and now international. It's, it's uh, mm. sorry, yeah, it's global. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What 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 do you, what are you encouraging kids to do? Well, I suppose 
the physical events were all, you know, when you think about a normal surfing competition, and I'm not sure if you've ever been to one, but what happens is you get scored when you ride the waves, and you get scored out of 10, so you go out into the water and the, the commentator's announcing the scores that people get, and that's kind of what the information you get. You get a 2.93 or a 4.73 or a 2.89 or a 7.38, or a, and, and there's all these scores coming over the PA system that the parents are listening to, and then your two-wave total is a 7.98 and you came sixth. And that's all the information you get. And the parents are all sitting around there trying to understand this mathematical bombardment of numbers and trying to figure out how what they can tell their kids they did right, what they did wrong, and, and what information they could give them to learn. So I was never a fan of that system, especially for young kids, you know. Um, so... So we don't score a ride for three days. We just watch their, their performances and they go out and surf and when they come in, they get a paragraph of coaching that tells them what they get did right, what they did wrong, what they could do to improve, where they could put their focus. Um, and everybody, whether you come you know, first or sixth in that heat, you all get the same amount of attention and they all surf three times. So it's become a favourite for people as their introductory step into surfing competitions. And then we've had the best surfers in the, you know, in the Tyler Rock the world champions won it before you know some of the great surfers have won this event and come through it so to translate that concept into a virtual online form when we had to cancel the physical events we've also done events in bali the last couple of years and we were going to the maldives and we're starting to get a global expansion um but the opportunity to do it online and in a virtual sense was something I had in mind for a while. We, we made the decision to cancel the physical events, which was now, in retrospect, the right thing to do, thankfully. And, um, the, and so this virtual online event was born. Uh, we've had over 270 entries, and we've had them from places like the Canary Islands, Wales, Belgium, kid from Belgium, Costa Rica, Brazil, you know, Peru, all around the, the, the globe, a lot in, all through Europe, South America. So kids have kind of connected with the idea and immediately, like you said, that it was a young girl, the three-year-old, her name was Ren, Ren Mitchell, but I suppose her nickname's Dog, and so the clips in there is Ren Dog Mitchell, this three-year-old little girl, and I'm going, this just doesn't match up, you know, like... Um, and there she is catching her very first wave with her dad. And when I saw that, and I saw there's footage of a South African kid going to the car to go for a surf with his parents, but in the car is his first ever brand new surfboard, and he doesn't know oh, it's in there. Oh, and he, and they, oh, filmed, they filmed this excitement. Zach Epinetus, his name is, um, from Cape Town in South Africa. And, and to watch, that was one of the first day, opening days we got that video. And I, I saw it, and I went, people get it. They know that this isn't just for good surfers. This is for all surfers of all levels. And really our goal is just to build community. And at this point in time, we're social distancing and, and staying separated from people. And that there's all of that alienation kind of going on and in place. I feel like for us to be bringing to kids this opportunity to be a part of a global community of frothing little surf grommets and meet kids from other parts of the world who they ordinarily would never meet and connect with and all of that is just such a it's such a cool thing and it's time it's time is right and it's really uh it's really been well received the sponsors have been super stoked and so 
for me, it's a, it's really great to see that you could translate it from a physical thing into an online thing, and people still understand our spirit and why we do it. And it's not about winning and losing. It's not about being the best. It's just about coming together as a bunch of surfers and and sharing and trying to become better at what we do. Because the better you get at it, the more fun you have. Exactly, and it's um it's bringing that soul yeah. into surfing as well. Um, we're going to have to move on in a sec, but and I just wanted to ask one last yes. question about um. Uh, how people can submit their videos. I'm hoping you're getting some good submissions mm. from Victoria. It's pretty tricky here at the moment because we're in a 5K bubble, so people aren't allowed to travel more than 5K from their homes. But maybe for people who live down um, on the, you know, on the peninsulas, um, down the Great Ocean Road, yep. uh, if they're able to kind of, you know, get their kids out, the water's still pretty cold down here as well, but get their submissions in. Um, they've got two weeks to do it. Yep, open till October 31st. And you just go to bartonlynch.com and uh, follow the links at my website there. And we've already got a couple. We've got a, a Kai Hall as a young kid, I think, from Jan Juck we had a video from, and a, a couple of sisters, Sarah and Sonia Sensuente, I think their surname was. So we've already got some entries from down there, but they have said how difficult it's been because of that, that 5K bubble. So hopefully that lifts soon and the kids can get out there but you know I think the proof of concept is there and we know that this is a is a going concern and we'll be doing it again next year and so there'll be lots of opportunities and hopefully we get to bring a physical event down there to Victoria at some point too and connect you know physically with the kids and make make it happen down there would be great. Yeah and we'd love to have you in the studio button as well we we have regular chats with good people from the um, from Surfrider and also from Disabled Surfers Association and we know that you're their patron so we'd love to have you back with us um, yeah. and, and talk about DSA but all, all sorts of other great work that you're doing as well. Oh, I'd appreciate that. It'd be fantastic and they're two great organisations. Happy to know that you guys are behind them. Oh yeah, 100%. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so, much for, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, we'll, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page and if people are listening and um, we're actually expecting an announcement today that that 5k bubble is going to be uh, expanded and hopefully significantly expanded. The rumour is to 20k so that should make it possible for people to get out there and get a good surf in. So hopefully you'll, you'll start to get a flood of entries from Victoria in the next, uh, next few days. I hope so, and I hope you guys get that freedom back. It, it makes you realise what you had when you don't have it, doesn't it? That's for sure. Definitely. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. We look have forward a great to. Uh, one. Yeah, you too. We'll catch up with you soon, hopefully. Thank you very much. Appreciate the support. Oh, absolutely. Okay, bye for now. Thanks, Button. Barton, Barton Lynch there and Blast Off is the name of the program. We'll be putting a link to that on our Facebook page. Definitely get in there and check out some of the entries so far. They're absolutely incredible. All right. uh, it's seven minutes to ten and we want to get straight into our chat with Jackie Younger from the Save Our Spider Crabs campaign. Can you believe, Jackie, it's only six months until spider crabs are set to return? I know. Hey, Brian, it's coming up really fast. Even with even with lockdown, time's still going really fast. <laughs> um, it's been a, a little while since we caught up with you during Radiothon, and at that point, I think you just launched a, a very impressive and eye-catching logo. Um, we've got a photo of you modelling this logo on our <laughs> Facebook page. <laughs> what's been What's been happening over the last couple of months with the campaign? Um, look, oh, look, where do I start? couple of minutes so <laughs> um, we've been having a lot of um, meetings with community groups um, cancel cancel candidates wanted to peninsula shy talking to a lot of different stakeholders about what we where we're up to and what we're at and primarily um, now we've been working on towards the submission which is due on the 27th of October um, I just wanted to if, if I can if I 
we've got time just for me to explain a little bit about why we're opposing the um, reduced catch limit from, that fisheries has submitted um, to the public. We've got time to cover that really quickly. Yeah, definitely. So we, we did catch up with Dallas De Silva a few weeks ago. He was yep. talking about the proposed bag limit reduction. Um, yep. Maybe just for listeners who didn't catch that chat, um, can you talk us through what they're proposing? Oh, absolutely. Well, fisheries are, at the moment, it is uh, a catch limit of 30 crabs per person per day. So um, the VFA is, is proposed to reduce that to 15. Um, and they've had a submission out for about five weeks now. So we've got a week left to get submissions in. So 27th of October is the cutoff day. Uh, okay, excellent. Uh, what, what, what are the main reasons behind your, um, you know, not accepting this as being a, a, an alternative as a p- potential solution to the problem? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I want to make it really clear. We've had a really collaborative relationship. We've been working towards a compromise for about a year and a half now. Um, about we, we supported a reduced catch limit. That made sense. Um, now, the reason that we... One of the main reasons we um, oppose the catch limit is because the VFA conducted a survey of crab netters and... Look, the survey found that a significant number of those crab netters um, caught 15 or less anyway. So as far as we are concerned in this particular issue, yes, it was a good step towards a compromise. We were always always going to go through total protection. A catch limit of 15 doesn't make any sense because it's not going to change anything. It's not going to change the environmental damage. And if all the if people are fishing out, if majority of people are fishing 15 or less crabs anyway, we're not going to see a different situation in 2021. It's going to be the same as it was this year. Um, can you tell us about the petition that you've got running? Because it closes in a couple of weeks, and I know you're encouraging people who are feeling strongly about this. There were certainly a lot of them back in June, in May and June. Uh, what are you hoping that people will do to support your campaign? Oh, absolutely. So what we really want to do is we really want people to submit personal letters um, to the... They go to um, three or four of the relevant ministers and also to the VFA. So on our um, Spider Crab Alliance Facebook page, there is a link that takes you to a really easy submission process. There's two types of um, letters that you can send, but we really try to encourage people to send in a personal letter to what crabs mean to them. You know, these people may support a reduced bag limit. They may not. We we oppose it, but we really want people to let their ministers and let the VFA know how they feel. So that that's only got uh, until the 27th of 7th of October. Our petition's still running on our Spider Crab Alliance page. I think we've got over 35,000 now, so that's just sitting there ticking along. Um, but it's really important people get these letters in, and we know how how, how challenging this time is for everyone, and we... We know that people get a little bit tired of, of filling out um, letters and submissions, but we would really encourage everyone to do this. It's, it's one chance for them to really have a say on how they feel. Yeah, and important too to note that, um, you know, last time when the crabs went back out to sea, we we're looking at a 10-month time frame before they, we came, uh, sure. before they come back. And we're only, we're already down to six months and sure. um, parliamentary time frames are notoriously slow. So in terms of actually bringing in a no-take, uh, you know, a no-take um, time frame, uh, you know, the time's really starting to run out for that. So, 
Uh, thank you so much, Jackie. I'm sorry we've had to cut it short today. Oh, no, that's OK. I just wanted to get a note in about submissions for those people who didn't know about them. So just head to the Spider Crab Alliance Facebook page and you can just find the link there. It's a really easy way to do it. That's fine. Let's catch up in a few weeks' time. Um, we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page as well. Sure. And, um, and just to clarify too, you know, so often these campaigns are about divers versus fishers. And this, mm-hmm. is this the case for spider crabs? No, I really want to make that clear. That's something people really... I really want people to understand. This is not a divers versus fishers issue. We have had a much bigger input from the local community, the general community, a bigger outcry and more more, uh, conversations with community groups. We haven't really heard too much from the dive industry at at this point, but everyone's struggling. So it's really important that people understand it's not... It's about a range of stakeholders, not just divers versus fishers. That was never the case. Excellent. Thanks so much, Jackie. And um, let's, no worries, ca- let's catch up in a few weeks' time and, and talk about how that petition finished up and, and where your campaign's running from there. Thank you so much. Appreciate your support. As always. Have a good day. Thanks, Jackie. See you soon. Uh, bye. Bye. Jackie Younger there, uh, Save Our Spider Crabs, which brings us to the end of Radio Marinara. Thanks so much to our guests, to Jackie, to Barton Lynch. Thank you, Rex Hunter. Thank you, Farm. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.